Good afternoon, everyone. God commanded his people to keep the Day of Atonement, which we're observing today. And we read in Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 26, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of this month shall be the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. And then going on in verse 32, it says, It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls, meaning that you are to fast. On the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. So as on the weekly Sabbath and other annual Sabbaths, on the Day of Atonement, there was to be a convocation from the Hebrew word mikra, which means a calling together or an assembly. In other words, a convocation, a, an event where people gather together to worship God and to hear his word taught. It's important that we understand why we keep this day and the lessons we are to learn from it. And that's what I want to discuss in today's sermon. Like all of God's festivals, there is a multifaceted meaning to the Feast of, Ato of Atonement. The Feast of Atonement holds important lessons in how God is going to establish peace and tranquility on the earth in the future and how sinners may be reconciled to God. Now, as we've mentioned many times and probably will mention it many more times, we are told in Colossians 2, beginning with verse 16 and 317, we're told that the Sabbaths are, not were, but are, a shadow of things to come. The Sabbaths are a shadow of things to come. In other words, they have prophetic meaning as well as historical meaning. And the word shadow is translated in the New King James Version is from the Greek word skia, which means a sketch or an outline. It is a representation conveying to our minds a pattern. The Sabbaths are formulated according to the pattern of God's plan of salvation for mankind. It reveals the steps in that plan, how that plan is, is shaped and reveals in a way that we can understand if it's explained to us properly, and it is explained in the scriptures, exactly how God is going about fulfilling his purpose for mankind. The Feast of Trumpets, which we observed 10 days ago, prefigures Christ's return to earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, among other things. The Feast of Tabernacles foreshadows the millennial rule on earth of Jesus Christ. But sandwiched between is the Day of Atonement. What the Day of Atonement pictures is a necessary prelude to establishing God's kingdom on earth. There can be no millennium of peace and tranquility without what is pictured by the Day of Atonement. We might ask what, after all, is God's purpose for mankind? And that question is answered in various scriptures in, in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 7. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 7, Paul wrote, We speak of the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. 
And we read in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We can know intellectually some things, but having the full understanding of those things is something that we won't accomplish fully until, until the reality has been actually achieved. But nevertheless, God's Spirit can reveal to us much information about what God has prepared for those who love Him. And what God has prepared for those who love Him was ordained or predetermined before the ages, as we just read. It, it was predetermined before time as we know it began, as we read in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. In Ephesians 3 and verse 8, Ephesians 3, beginning with verse 8, Paul explains what his work was about. He said that he was sent to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice it is the mission, the responsibility of the church to make known this information, this revelation. Now what is the eternal purpose which God accomplished in Jesus Christ? Well, that, if we understand that, then we understand what his purpose is for us. The eternal purpose which God accomplished in Christ Jesus is that the man, Jesus Christ, died in the flesh to make possible the forgiveness of our sins, but was resurrected from the dead in the likeness of God as his son. We read in Romans chapter 1 and verse 3, Romans 1 beginning with verse 3, His Son, that is God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. In Hebrews 1 and verse 1, Hebrews 1 beginning with verse 1, it's written, God who at various times in various ways spoken time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, meaning Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus Christ lived as a human being. He died. He died for a specific purpose to pay for our sins. And then he was resurrected in the likeness of God. He is the express image of his person, it says. Likewise, God's purpose as for us is that we 
should become his sons. We should become his sons in his divine family. We read in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 15, Malachi 2 and verse 15, did he not make them one? Now this is a reference to what God did in the Garden of Eden in creating Adam and Eve out of one flesh. And they were, they were one in that sense, although they were two separate individuals. He made them one having a remnant of the spirit. And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Or it could be translated offspring of God. God created Adam and Eve and he created them in the way that he did create them, male and female, with the capacity to procreate or to bear children. He, he did this because he seeks a family. He seeks godly offspring. He plans to reproduce himself in that sense. And so he made Adam and Eve of Eve was made of the bone and the flesh of Adam. Now, God could have done it differently. He could have formed Eve directly from the ground or the, the, the elements of the earth, just as he did Adam, but he didn't. He did it a different, a different way to illustrate unmistakably that the two were one flesh. And he could have made more than one wife for Adam. He could have created multiple Adams and multiple Eves, so to speak. But he did none of this directly. Of course, we're all his cre creatures in, a, in, a, in an indirect sense through the process of procre procreation. But uh, what he did was create one man and of his flesh and bone, one woman, man and wife, to be progenitors of the human family. And the reason is because he, he himself seeks godly offspring. It is through the human family that God intends to reproduce himself. And so we're told in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, 1 John 3 and verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God. Now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So, in other words, it is revealed in a sense what we shall be, but as far as fully grasping and understanding that, to, to appreciate the full reality of it is something that we won't experience until we are resurrected into the likeness of God. And it says, we shall be like him as his children. God intended from the beginning to share with mankind the joy of eternal life. As we read in Psalm 16, verse 11, Psalm 16, verse 11, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what God wants to do. He wants to share his life, eternal life with us. And he wants to do it because his life is a life of joy. And he wants us to experience that same life and share it with him. 
But look at the world of humanity today. Could you say that the world today is a place where joy, uh, where joy is just being experienced universally, brimful and and without any thing to suppress that joy? I, I read some time ago how many people in the United States are on antidepressants, but vast numbers of them, I think. Antidepressants are, if not the number one prescribed medication in this country, it is, is very close to being number one. The world today is not what God purposed. The world today is an unhappy world of frustration, of misery, and of death. For 6,000 years, mankind has been beset by squalor, ignorance, violence, warfare, and death. And... So we need to ask, how did it become this kind of world? How did, how did it become this kind of world? God created human beings. He created Adam and Eve. But So why is the world the way it is today? If God is benevolent and if he wants us to be happy, why is the world so unhappy? Well, it began with the first humans, Adam and Eve. In Genesis 2, beginning with verse 8, Genesis 2 and verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So this was a garden full of trees that were all good for food, and this is really representative of the benefits and blessings of being under God's rule and his government. But there were two special trees in that garden, one called the tree of life and also another tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, Adam and Eve were given access to the trees of the garden. In fact, they were commanded to eat of them, including the tree of life. They had full access to every one of those trees except one. And he told them to leave that other tree alone. In Genesis 2 and verse 16, Genesis 2 and verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, or as it is in the Hebrew, eating you shall eat. It's actually a command. And that would mean that they were commanded to eat of the tree of life. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In other words, there was only one tree that they were not permitted to partake of, and the penalty for partaking of it was going to be the death penalty. Now, we don't know how long things went well for Adam and Eve in the garden. It doesn't really give us a timeline there, but... Apparently, it wasn't very long before another figure entered the scene. We read in Genesis 3 and verse 1, Genesis 3 and verse 1, it says, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. 
but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. So notice how the serpent who is Satan, and he's called a serpent here because of the way he disguises himself. He appears often as an angel of light, but he is actually our worst enemy and God's worst enemy. And he is a liar. And when he told them that they would not die, he lied to them. And he told them their eyes would be open. In fact, their eyes would not be open. They would be blind to the truth by doing what they were told not to do. And he told them that they would be like God, knowing good and evil. So they ate of that tree. When the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. The tree of life is a symbolic of eternal life. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They were cut off from life through this act. Now the word translated to know and knowledge here is, the, is from the root Hebrew yada. And the definition can include the idea of designating or determining, not just knowing, but deciding what is good and evil. And that's the real crux of the matter. They took upon themselves the, the prerogative of deciding for themselves what is good and what is evil. They rejected God's authority as a lawgiver and they usurped his prerogative. That was the point of him telling them to leave that tree alone because that was a prerogative that he reserved for himself. And in doing that, they rejected his law and they became a law unto themselves. Yet in James 4 and verse 12, James 4 and verse 12, it says, there is one lawgiver. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy the one lawgiver, the one being who has the authority to determine what is right and what is wrong is God. And his laws tell us what is good and what is evil. Also in doing that and rebelling against God, they chose Satan's rule over God's rule. God had created them. He had authority over them as their creator and ruler. 
but they chose to follow Satan instead of God, and they submitted themselves then to Satan's influence and his rulership. And so Adam and Eve were thrust out of the garden and they were cut off from direct contact with God. Adam and Eve were given the opportunity or had been given the opportunity to partake of the tree of life and live forever. But because God's terms for giving the, tree, giving the gift of eternal life include submission to his law, instead of life, the reign of death ensued, not only for Adam and Eve, but for all their progeny, in other words, for all mankind. But God has also provided a remedy for our predicament because we are under that same curse. We are living under a reign of death. Romans 5 verse 14. Romans 5 verse 14, it says, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Every human being who has lived has been subject to death. And that included those who did not rebel against God. There were a few righteous men and women, even before Moses' time, and yet they died. It goes on to say in verse 17 of Romans 5, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So even though the, death, the, the earth and mankind has been under this curse of death, it says that there is a way that we can regain that promise, that we can have life. And it goes along with the gift of, of grace and righteousness. Now, as Satan deceived Eve through his lies, he has now deceived the whole world, as we're told in Revelation 12, verse 9. And we're told in 2 Corinthians 4, and verse 4, that Satan is the god of this age. In Ephesians 2, verses 2 and 3, we're told that Satan is the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And in Revelation 17, beginning in verse 1, we're informed that through his false religious system, Satan has made the world spiritually drunk. In other words, the world is blind and stumbling blindly like a drunk man through an alley. We're told that Satan leads mankind into iniquity or lawlessness, just as he did Adam and Eve. In 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 9, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. In Isaiah 14, beginning of verse 3, Satan is referred to metaphorically as the king of Babylon and is shown to be the oppressor of this world. 
but God still has his purpose that was in his mind before time began. And for him to accomplish his purpose for mankind, God must do two things. He must reconcile mankind to himself, first of all, and he must put away the adversary, the deceiver, the oppressor. And both of these are pictured by the Day of Atonement. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, they had full access to God. They could talk to him face to face. But when they sinned, they were cast out of the garden and they were cut off from the face of God. They were cut off from access to his throne of grace. The Day of Atonement points prophetically to the time when all mankind will be restored to that garden-like condition or that Eden-like condition of being in favor with God and having access to him. It is also intended to teach how it is possible for us to be restored to God's favor and by what means we have access to his throne of mercy. On the Day of Atonement under the Levitical system, the high priest was to take two goats as a sin offering. As we read in Leviticus 16, beginning with verse 7, Then he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. Notice the goat on which the Lord's lot fell was to be offered as a sin offering, meaning that it was to be slain and then burnt. Sin is what separates mankind from God. As it says in Isaiah 59 verse 2, Isaiah 59, verse 2, Your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. It is sin that separated Adam and Eve from God. It's sin that separates us from God. Within the tabernacle that was built in the wilderness under God's instructions, within that tabernacle separated from the rest of the interior by a curtain or a veil was the holy place, as it was called. In the, it was also called the Holy of Holies. And in the holy place was the Ark of the Covenant, which was a box which had the law of God in it, placed in it, a copy of it, along with some other items. And that box was covered by a lid made of pure gold. The ark and its cover were flanked by two cherubim made of gold who, whose outspread wings covered the area where the ark and its covering were. Now these were all physical, tangible symbols of spiritual reality. The tabernacle symbolized the spiritual temple of God, which is the church of God. The Hebrew word for the covering or lid 
of the Ark of the Covenant is kapareth, and that word means covering. But its name does not derive only from the fact that it covered the Ark. Kapareth is the feminine form of the Hebrew word kafar, which means to cover. Where you read the word atonement in your English Old Testament, it is a translation of this Hebrew word kafar, or a similar word derived from it. The reason this Hebrew word takes on the meaning of atonement or reconciliation is that atonement only becomes possible when sin is covered. Kapareth, the name for the cover over the ark, is translated into the English term mercy seat. The mercy seat was a symbol of God's throne, of God's presence, of God in the midst of his people. Once a year and once a year only, the high priest could come through the veil into the holy place where the mercy seat was. And when he came, he came with blood including the blood of the sin offering, and sprinkled it on the mercy seat. Without blood, it was not possible to approach God's throne. In Leviticus 16, verse 2, Leviticus 16, verse 2, the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place, inside the veil, before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. And then verse 29 of Leviticus 16, it says, This shall be a statute forever for you in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month. You shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your, of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you, to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. And then in Hebrews 9, verse 6, Hebrews 9, verse 6, when these things had been thus prepared, speaking of the tabernacle and its furnishings and so forth, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services, but into the second part the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Or in other words, sins committed without a full comprehension of the gravity of sin. And the day that he went into the holy place with the blood of the sin offering was on the Day of Atonement. These old covenant rituals were symbols to show how access to God's throne could be restored to human beings. The blood the priest brought was the blood of animals, but the blood of animals could not atone properly for sin. They could not cover sin. They were not sufficient. So the mercy seat remained behind the veil, showing that it was God's throne was still inaccessible. It was inaccessible except to the priest once and that only once a year. But what the animal blood symbolized 
what it symbolized, which is the blood of Christ given in sacrifice for the sins of mankind, can do the job. The blood of Christ can cover and atone for sin. For us whose sins are covered by the sacrifice of Christ's blood, the Day of Atonement reveals that we now, through Christ, have access to the throne of God. The sin offering was representative of sin. Christ is our sin offering. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20, or beginning with verse 20, it says, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Notice what he says. He says, be reconciled to God. That's what the Feast of Atonement is all about. He goes on to say, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Or you might say, to be a sin offering for us. Because remember, the sin offering was sin in God's sight. It became sin. He made him who knew no sin to be a sin or a, to be sin or a sin offering for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The sin offering, as I said, was regarded as sin and the sins of mankind were placed on the body of Jesus Christ at the time of his crucifixion. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 21 and verses 21 and 24, it says, Christ also suffered for us who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. By the offering of his blood, our sins are forgiven when we have entered into a new covenant with God. One of the cardinal points of that new covenant is the forgiveness of sin. As we read in Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10 verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So our sins may be covered, hidden from God's sight by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we now have access to God, to God's throne, through Jesus Christ. As we read in Hebrews 10, beginning with verse 18. Hebrews 10, verse 18. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. This, uh, this is a reference to the holy place, the throne of God as it was portrayed in the tabernacle and later the temple. 
Now we have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. It is through the slain body of Jesus Christ and through his blood that we have access to God. It goes on to say, having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, notice that having gained favor with God, having gained access to his throne of mercy, we must remain faithful. In Hebrews 10 and verse 23, Hebrews 10 and verse 23, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. So if we decide to turn our backs on God and willfully begin to live a life of rebellion and sin, then we will be once again cut off from God. But through Jesus Christ, the groundwork has been laid not only for our reconciliation, but for the reconciliation of all mankind to God. In Colossians 1 and verse 19, Colossians 1 and verse 19, we read, For it pleased the Father that in him that is in Jesus Christ all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. All things means all mankind. Whether things on earth, things in heaven, or at least it includes mankind, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Notice it says having made peace through the blood of his cross. So the, the groundwork, the means for reconciliation is in place. But for that to be affected, repentance is necessary. There can be no reconciliation without repentance. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Acts 2 and verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now many have been and are being called, but not all have as yet been called. And God doesn't necessarily call someone just once. In fact, usually calls them many times. But eventually God will call every human being who's ever lived. And every single human being will have a fair chance for salvation. But for salvation, repentance is necessary. 
we read in Ezekiel a prophecy of Israel's repentance after having been brought out of captivity upon Christ's return. And this is part of what is symbolized by the Feast of Atonement. In Ezekiel 20, beginning with verse 41, Ezekiel 20, verse 41, I will accept you, he's speaking to the people of Israel, as a sweet aroma when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will be hallowed in you before the Gentiles. This is speaking of a future time when the Israelite peoples will once again have been removed from their inheritance and scattered among the Gentiles. And then God will gather them out of that captivity when Christ returns. And then it goes on to say, verse 42, Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel to into the country for which I have raised my hand in an oath to give to your fathers. And there you shall remember your ways and all your doings with which you were defiled, and you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight because of all the evils you have committed. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O house of Israel, says the Lord God. We've all earned the death penalty, but God can put that aside if and when we repent. And the purpose of sending the people of Israel into that captivity is to bring them to that point of repentance. Eventually, the rest of the nations following Christ's return will follow Israel into repentance. For mankind to remain reconciled to God during the millennial rule of Jesus Christ, however, the arch deceiver and adversary, Satan the devil, and his system of deception must be destroyed. We read in Isaiah 14, beginning with verse 12, another prophecy concerning Satan. Isaiah 14, beginning with verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. Now, Lucifer was the original name of Satan, which means the morning star or the, the uh, or it could be translated uh, light bringer. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. See, Satan's or Lucifer got to thinking that he would uh, that he would uh, ascend to heaven. He had been placed on the earth. But he would ascend to heaven and kick God off of his throne and take over. This was what he was thinking. It goes on to say, I will also sit in the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. So he was going to take over God's throne and the rulership of all creation. It goes on to say, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who 
made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners. This gives you an idea of the nature of Satan's rule. As we read earlier, there were two goats selected on the Day of Atonement. And lots were cast. The one goat for the Lord was to be killed and sacrificed as a sin offering. Then we read in Leviticus 16, beginning with verse 20, Leviticus 16, verse 20, and when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, going in and sprinkling the blood and so forth, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat, the second goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Now, as we read, one lot was for the Lord, the other lot was for Azazel, as it's rendered in many translations. Azazel is simply a transliteration of the Hebrew word, and it does not have the connotation often associated with the English word scapegoat used in the New King James and King James versions. The idea of a scapegoat to many implies someone being unfairly blamed for the misdeeds of others. And there are many people who teach falsely that the scapegoat or the goat that was released into the wilderness represents Jesus Christ. That is a false teaching. The word azazel means the goat that departs or the goat that disappears. And as we read in the Kyle and Delich commentary, it says the words, one lot for Jehovah, or the eternal Yahweh, and the one for Azazel, require unconditionally that Azazel should be regarded as a personal being in opposition to Jehovah or Yahweh. The goat slain as a sin offering on the Day of Atonement pictures Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. Azazel, the goat that departs into a place uninhabited, pictures Satan. Satan shall bear his share of guilt for the sins of mankind. He is the instigator of mankind's sins, just as he instigated the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He's the one that provoked them and led them into that sin. And he's doing the same thing today. Satan is God's adversary in opposition to God and in opposition to God's plan for mankind. And as we saw earlier, he has done everything possible to lead people into sin 
and he is doing so now. So this exercise in the ritual of the Old Covenant represents, in a prophetic way, Satan's fate. In Revelation 20 and verse 1, Revelation 20 and verse 1, it says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, the bottomless pit being a lake of fire. It will be located at a particular place on the earth where this chasm will be into which Satan will be cast. And he will be cast there and it says, and, and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years are finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little time or a little while. So Satan's punishment is to be removed and confined to a place where he can do no harm. And this will happen just after Jesus Christ returns to establish his rulership over the earth. And there are other scriptures that indicate that eventually Satan will be cast into outer darkness, completely cut off from God and the family of God. Upon Satan's removal and mankind's repentance, the veil of deception will be removed. The veil, the veil of blindness and ignorance will be removed. As we read in Isaiah 25, verse 7, Isaiah 25, verse 7, and he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations, meaning Satan's lies and deceptions. Mankind will be blessed with understanding and rejoice. As we read in Isaiah 29, beginning in verse 18, Isaiah 29, verse 18, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of blind will see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The book is the Bible. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel, for the terrible one is brought to nothing. The terrible one, meaning Satan, is brought to nothing. The scornful one is consumed. And all who watch for iniquity are cut off, who make a man an offender by a word, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and turn aside the just by empty words. Therefore thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham, concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face grow pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will hallow my name and hallow the Holy One of Jacob, and fear the God of Israel. Those who erred in spirit will come to understanding, and those who complain will learn doctrine. And so then, through what is pictured by the Day of Atonement, the conditions will be present for peace, universal joy, and happiness under Christ's rule. 